morning. So our passage today, perhaps you didn't quite hear it, but it's a passage that's about the church that has lost its way. It's sort of a sad passage, even if it's a clarifying passage. It represents the church under her Old Testament leadership, the Pharisees and the scribes. And the Pharisees and the scribes, a church that was caught up in the strife and divisions and controversies of the Roman society in which she lived, in which she was embedded, if you will, as a church. And yet the sad thing is that it's a passage that illustrates just how blind and how lost is the church when it gets caught up in all of that strife and begins to mimic that strife and division and controversies within itself and with her own community and worse still, such as to neglect if not altogether forget her transcendent calling. That is a calling to be missionaries in a society in which it is embedded. To be missionaries on behalf of God's purpose to reconcile the world to himself and to one another. To offer mercy and not just sacrifices of religious uh, sorts of things. Now, do I really need to spell out the relevance of this passage for us today? I think not. So let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us, open our hearts, really open our hearts. Already perhaps we feel within ourselves something of a pushback, not wanting to hear a critique maybe of our church here or in the world. Such an impulse we know was the impulse of the Pharisees. And so God, we pray you would help us to be open and hear your word as given to us prophetically in scripture. Come Lord Jesus, this is your church. Speak to us. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, again, the context, uh, Jesus, remember, we've been through this, this passage after passage after passage where Jesus has evidenced his great authority. Everyone in awe of this authority and his teachings and, and his power to defeat all kinds of curses, curses that are always attributed, of course, to sin. From all manners of diseases and handicaps to raging storms, demons even, and greatest of all, we left last week or last sermon with the defeat of sin itself. I mean, that is the greatest of all miracles, that, that sin, that which is embedded in the heart and soul of every human being, could be forgiven. And that for those who are sinners, they can be reconciled to them to their God, but also to themselves as image bearers. In other words, when we think of sin, we want to always remember that sin is a pollutant. It, 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 in an odd sort of way, it dignifies humanity. It explains why humanity can be at once so beautiful and so uh, the greatest and the highest of all of God's creation so worthwhile, if you will, and yet can do such horrible things. Sin is the ultimate problem in the world. A sin that has its original beginning, its cardinal 
moment, if you will, in the sin of rejecting God. And therefore, always throughout all of New and Test- Old New Testament, there is this missionary call of the people of God to reconcile people to God and to themselves as image bearers. And it results in the transformation of those image bearers to more and more image God. All of that comes into play in this passage today. Could Christ, with all of this great authority and power, could Christ, should Christ, devote his authority and power to forgive sin to the extent of reaching and speaking into the lives of Roman citizens that in every way fit the description of a culturally identified, and may I just use this word, deplorable. It really is a good description of who this passage wants us to consider as to be worthy of Christ and his authority and power to forgive sin. And so we find ourselves uh, with this invitation to a man named Levi, also called Matthew in verse nine. And we hear that he's a tax collector. And the reaction is of outrage. By then, the Jewish church vis-a-vis her leaders. And therefore, a subsequent discussion ensues concerning Christ's willingness to socialize with these tax collectors and sinners in verses 10 through 13. Let's just walk through it and see what we discover. Scene one, verse nine, the calling of Matthew. We find the scene at a tax collector's booth and their tax collectors hanging out around it, evidently. Now the Romans, well, you think you have it bad living in New Haven in Connecticut in, New, in, in America with taxes, you've seen nothing yet. The Romans laid taxes on just about everything you could lay a tax on. Taxes included land tax, taxes on imports and exports, tolls on roads and bridges, market and merchandise taxes. Well, you get the point. Literally be waiting in this particular case by the Sea of Galilee, would be waiting for fishermen to come off the sea and, and they would immediately collect tax based on the weight of their fish. We find ourselves at a custom booth then that collected the tolls on the fishing and the trade of the lake. Now, Rome sold the rights to collect these taxes to various select citizens or companies even, who in turn would send out agents and custom house officials. Now, to put it bluntly, these people that you would find at a tax booth or toll booth, if you will, these people in Israel at the time of Christ were the leeches. They were thought of as just leeches that sucked the financial blood out of the hardworking, working class laborers of Israel society and transferred it into the very extraordinarily wealthy coffers of the occupying with, that had and were maintained within the control of the Roman Empire. These tax collectors would take as much as they could get away with for themselves, often even more than, than was, was according to the law, but with the power to execute it. That's Levi. He is deplorable. He is that one who, if all people in society needs justice, 
not mercy. I mean, he's the Harvey Weinstein. He's the, and you can just fill it out. He's the corporate CEO who, who charges $400 million for a drug that should cost only $5. That's who this person is. Matthew, Levi was that person. And so we turn and we find that here's Christ coming up to the booth, not condemning Matthew, but inviting him. Now, do you begin to feel the outrage? What kind of church is this? What kind of church are you building, Christ? Don't you see the oppressed? Don't you see the hurting people of the world? This man is evil. This man is worse than evil. He's just ugly. We don't like him. We want justice. We want anger. Various uses of this term in the Greek, to call. The word there is called, language in the New Testament. Here, it's clearly a call to repentance and faith as a disciple following after Christ. It's not here a special call for a special vocation. Don't confuse it. We know that because later he explains it, to call not the righteous, but sinners. Luke adds to repentance in his description of the narrative. So there's no reason to suppose that this was Matthew's now first encounter with Christ. Most likely his place by the Sea of Galilee where there was much public activity had provided him already with many opportunities, perhaps, to hear Christ preach, to hear him share the gospel of the kingdom of God that is coming. So what is Matthew's response? We're told that he arose and followed him. That's language that you see that's very code language, that he became a follower of Christ. He responded with repentance and faith and became a Christian through repentance and faith. Christ's authority had broken his heart and reestablished it with saving grace. Again, earlier, the greatest miracle of all. This has happened to Levi, this horrible, deplorable person. Matthew's response, of course, following after Christ, becoming a follower of Christ, experiencing this, this weight-lifting sense of guilt that he must have had, perhaps, this burden of feeling shame and feeling miserable and everybody hating me, and here is this person who comes into my life and says, I forgive you? Are you kidding me? That's the kind of person that does what Levi did next. He pitches a party and he invites all the other deplorable friends of his to the party. This is significant. And you're thinking, well, what would be wrong with that? He's radioactive with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he wants all of his friends now to be saved. Now let's just think about this. What could be wrong about that? Well, plenty. Again, where is the justice? Where's the vengeance? Where's the reparations? 
Where's the righteous anger? Now, this is where I need to give you a little Bible study on the nature of the kingdom of God that Christ brought into the world. It's interesting that in another situation that involved money and the extortion of money and the cruelty of money and all of this sort of stuff, that the Pharisees tried to trick him because they knew what had happened here. This is later. And they walk up to him and they say, Jesus, you know, what, what, what do you say about this coin with Caesar's head on it? What do you think about this money? Basically getting him embroiled in the, in the hatred and the, and the intensity of this incredible cultural debate. And Jesus' comment, of course, is render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, render to God in the kingdom that he's building, particularly that God, uh, the things that are God's. I, I don't have time here to articulate this. It's very clear. It's in Scripture, but, but it would take us way off on a long Bible study. But let me explain what, what's happening here. You see, what's happening is that, that Christ is affirming the responsibility of, of the civil authorities to execute justice. He's affirming it, and he always will. He even submits to it himself. He doesn't say to Herod, you have no authority to do this. He submits to it as a passive resistance movement that he was. We see it in Romans 13. That there is vengeance, there is reparation, there is justice, and that is given unto the civil sphere. They are described throughout the Old and New Testament, this civil sphere of temporal, that's key word there, temporal authority, the power over means, the power over money, the power over land, the power over those temporal things, those are powers that do fall under this jurisdiction of civil authority, and this civil authority is charged with, at best, if they work perfectly, restraining evil by virtue of justice and punishment that would thwart sin and its exercise. But notice, that kind of power over sin is a negative power. Now, what I mean by that is it's, it's a power that assumes that the sin principle is still alive in that person. So it's now, it's, active, it's actively working against the selfish interest of the sinner. That's what punishment does. Punishment as a, pun, as a means of censor, if you will, assumes that I'm still dealing with someone whose heart is fundamentally selfish whose heart is fundamentally still under the curse of Adam and is being lived by that curse and being selfish, self-sufficient, independent of God, and therefore he is doing what is right according to his own interest. And therefore the government makes it according to his own interest to do that which does not hurt other people by virtue of leveraging their land, their money, their even body, uh, putting them in jails. You see what's going on here? Now, I have just so simplified stuff here, you can't believe it. So much written from Scripture about this. And so Jesus here is not ignoring the rightful role of temporal 
justice and punishment against those who would violate common law. A kind of justice that's for all people of all faiths and none with no distinction, including Christians. But Christ's kingdom has a much, much more authoritative and powerful purpose. A purpose that makes that look like pennies compared. For what if, oh God, what if you could change the heart? What if you could, what if you could go in there and unlock the safe where the original sin is and, and expunge it? Where a person now becomes transformed by your power, not just forced into submission, but transformed by the power of God. See, that's the kind of power that everyone's so awed about here in Matthew. A power that has not only the capacity to, to rid the world of the outward and temporal curses of sin, like handicaps and disease and storms even, but also to rid them of the demons, the spiritual powers and principalities that are work within them that, that tempt them and that move them. And not only that, but the power to unleash the mercy of God that transforms a person from the inside and out. I hope and pray you'll never forget this sermon. This is a power not of this world. It says it over and over and over and over again in Scripture, that kind of phrase. This is a power that, that is the power to deliver us for, from sin, not just to restrain it, through coercive maneuvers of the civil authority, as it justified and right as that is. But this is the power that transforms sin into righteousness. That has the power to, I mean, can you, it's a new creature power. That's what it is. Ah, you've heard that. A person in this kind of power, this doesn't become a, a different person, they become a new person, a new creation. It is a, it is a recreation event likened unto the first creation of heaven and earth. It's the kind of creation, the kind of power that moves the proverbial mountain of original sin. We have been throughout this series just trying to get in touch with this and how that would just change our attitude and our perception of life because what we want our children to have, what we want our world to have, what we want, uh, yes, the deplorables of the world to have is not just the coercion of outward forcing a man or woman to compliance to common law, but oh, what would it be for a person to become a new person? No institution on earth has the power to do that but the church. How can I say it clear enough? What a sad, pitiful, lousy, low down, I don't know whatever word it is when the church loses her transcendent identity and gets lost 
in a sea of temporal conflict. It's such a sad day. And this is the moment that we have in this passage where we see flat out, right there in front of us, the church of God, the old covenant church of God under the dispensation of Moses and how that dispensation had forgotten altogether the promises and the purposes of her existence given to Adam to, to spread the world throughout, you know, to, to, to reproduce God's kingdom throughout the world through Seth, through Noah, through Abraham, particularly Abraham, where clearly Israel's missionary purpose was that the nations would all be healed. Malachi picks it up and is quoted in our passage. Isaiah picks it up and is quoted in our passage. It's as if Matthew says the church had lost its way. Nitpicking or, 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 or selectively picking out passages that rightly exhorted the church for the sake of her witness, don't get this, for the sake of her witness, not to become syncretistic with society. Becoming syncretistic means that you begin to mimic the worldviews and the values and the manners, and yes, the sins of society. Yes, this church Israel was to be this remnant kind of a kingdom within a greater social kingdom a kingdom not of this world, but the manner of that kingdom was such that it would be attracting people to come like hordes to the temple where they could receive mercy. All of that embedded in the commission to Abraham and even Moses. And yet they'd selectively chosen those passages, taking them out of context and said, all the passage that wants to tell us not to be like the world, to, to condemn the world and all of this sort of stuff, which is right in the sense, but we forgot the purpose of it. I mean, Matthew, I mean, Peter, I mean, I'm sorry, Paul does this perfectly in Ephesians, where he talks about these days that are evil. And, he, and then you're thinking, well, what is he saying? He's talking about be not like them, you know, separate yourself from them. He gives you that kind of line. But then he says, in order to be a light and the, to the Gentiles. That is not to condemn them, but to attract them, to, to, for you to be that place where they say, wow, this is a transformed people. This is what Jeremiah envisioned when he talked about how the law upon the coming of the Messiah and the Holy Spirit would be written upon our hearts. Christian, church, have we lost sight of how powerful our Jesus is, and subsequently how powerful the church that is Christ in the world is? Well, that was all that stuff that gets you to exactly where we go. Scene two. We're now in Levi's house. We know that because, uh, and we know that in this house there are many, we're told, there's a great crowd, evidently a great celebration again to, to, uh, to include all of these deplorables with Matthew to celebrate, to hear testimony of Matthew's conversion to Jesus Christ, how he's been set free from guilt, from shame. Christ in the passage is described here, notice as reclining. That's key. That's code word for he was the honored guest. 
phrase used to describe the guest of honor at a special meal rather than just an ordinary one. Very explicitly, Matthew's great banquet was meant to exalt not himself, but Christ. Let me tell you about this man sitting here at the head of the table and what he can do for you. This was just an amazing moment. If you remembered your missionary identity. Again, who were there? The tax collectors and sinners. Notice the synonymous sort of use of chi there, the Greek word, you know, and. Tax collectors, that is even sinners. That's where I think you should read it. Not two separate categories here, but as one and the same. Just being described, one in social terms, which I think is interesting. The way the society would say them is, oh, they're tax collectors. They're misogynist. They're racist. They're capitalist, whatever. No, they're sinners. What does that do to you? I mean, we're, we're pretty good at thinking about how we want to save sinners. You know, the kind that are sort of put in nice, tidy boxes. You know, people who may struggle with adultery or struggle with, you know, this or cuss or thing. You know, we do. But, oh, no, no, no. Let's don't talk about the Harvey Weinsteins being the guest of a party like this. And so that's what's going on here. The tax collectors, you know, sinners. Of course, that meant to invoke something. For forever, Christ is talking about how he's come to save sinners. Sinners is a category, not now that thinks of them as the deplorable, listen to me, but thinks of them as human image bearers in need of salvation. It's a different way of framing it now. All of a sudden, this misogynist is an image bearer and has gotten grossly perverted, even disgustingly perverted by the pollutant of original sin, reckon of, of, of rejecting God in some fundamental way. This person, though still, is an image bearer. You know, Psalms 139, fearfully and wonderfully made. Worthy by nature of who this person is to God, worthy of being healed of his sin. And so you have these two nouns with one article, if you want to know the Greek behind it, such that the two classes are really one group, just said in a way that would invoke a very different reaction. The first class would invoke, tax collector would invoke a kind of reaction of, of deplorable. The second would, if you are at least a, a trained biblical understanding of, of the word from old to new is a, a word that describes a spiritual reality to this person, not a social reality and how they relate to God as estranged, as cursed, as in need of a savior. Well, we're at this banquet especially planned by Matthew to introduce his new teacher and master, but Savior. And for those who were still in the missionary frame of informed by God's call to Abraham and even Moses after him, this was a perfectly suitable scene. 
the conversion of a sinner and the immediate radioactive motivation, you know, that when you really do come to Christ as a sinner, the reaction of being saved is radioactive. It's not a duty to go share my faith. It's a privilege. It's like I, I can't stop myself. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me, and I want you to know about it. And so he extends this invitation to be saved to all those who are in need of salvation, of course. I mean, of course. <laughs> Scene three. Enter the Pharisees. Now, I don't know if they're cowards. I just don't know if they didn't have access to Christ, what it was. But it's clear that they don't approach Jesus. They approach his followers. That's so common. <laughs> that is such a common tactic of Satan. Don't go to the guy that's actually going to be able to refute you in your logic. Go to those who are a little bit more weak, a little less trained, a little less whatever, and let's talk to them. And so they go to them and they go, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Again, selectively reading the Old Testament is a valid question. Leviticus 20, I have separated you from the other peoples to be mine. The Psalms, happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers. I have quotes here from intertestamental period literature that the scribes had written in, the Torah, in, in this tradition. And I won't quote from, from Jubilee, from the Epistles to Aristides and others, where they were saturated with a whole spirituality of separation from and condemning from. And it's rightful in the sense that you would put it in the context of the greater mission. But when you take it off of that context, it becomes very, quote, pharisaical or self-righteous. I want to go off on another diatribe right now on that one. You know, you can have the doctrines of grace, if you mean by that the doctrines of justification, sanctification, da 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 da. But if you forget the purpose of those doctrines, it becomes a very, well, the word's not right here, uh, a, a very misused understanding of those doctrines. Do you understand what I'm saying? I can remember a conversation like yesterday of a man who had been an elder in a church for 30 years and had never seen a conversion in his church. And he came in with tears one day. Some of you might know who I'm talking about. We baptized an adult here. And he says, pastor crying after the service. I'm a, I'm a Presbyterian elder. It wasn't in this church. And, I've, and I just realized, I wonder, have my whole life been wasted? I've never seen an adult conversion. A man who held the doctrines of the Reformed faith could teach them, was a teacher of them, a Sunday school teacher, an elder. I mean, he, he had read every Calvinistic piece of literature that I think is, is written in the world. Honestly, he probably has. He could get into it with you like anyone else. But there he was, a broken man, standing right there with me, right there, crying. And we set up in a meeting that week later on, and we talked. And what it was discovered is that in a simple way, and I'm, it, I obviously can't tell you all the things, but in a very simple way, it's like he had the doctrines right. But he had detached them, or this movement that he had been part of had just totally lost itself in its way as to what those doctrines were for. They weren't just for us to celebrate. The doctrines being doctrines. They were for us to be missionaries with. I had a wonderful time with some of our graduate students. When, when was that? Uh, Thursday, was it? Yeah, Thursday night. 
and we were talking a little bit about that. And I gave him uh, an analogy, and I told him I was going to give it again today, but uh, an analogy of the controversy between a man named Stuart Robinson and the other, another editor of another paper in the 19th century. And they were talking about what's the meaning of true conservatism in a spiritual sense. And this guy was sort of, you know, talking to Robinson, who himself would be described as an old school Presbyterian kind of conservative guy. And he's talking to him about, you know, well, you know, kind of this view that my fellow elder had of we're here to protect it, we're to conserve it, this doctrine, et cetera, et cetera. And how you do that. Robinson wrote back and says, well, your doctrine of conversion, I mean, of, of conservatism, sounds a bit like a guy who has a ship and in order to conserve it, keeps it um, on the dock. Doesn't let it go out to sea. Oh, you're going to preserve your ship by cloistering it into, into your church, into your world. You're going to, you'll preserve it. You're not going to take any risk. Oh, let's don't play around with any more forms of music here that make our accessible. Uh-uh, don't do that. we got to protect the doctrines of grace. Oh, let's don't, let's don't risk going out on the streets and maybe associating somehow by doing the right thing, but there'll be some wrong people there. You know, guilty by association kind of stuff. I could go on and on and on. I've been a pastor a long time now. It's so easy. It's so easy to forget. And that's what we have happening here. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? To the person who knew Abraham and the covenant made with Abraham and all of the law, etc., the other half of it that they had forgotten selectively, they would have just laughed and said, are you joking me? What do you think the Messiah came to do? <laughs> but to save sinners. It's like, duh. But that's how lost we can get. And so he answered them in three parts. First, a proverb. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. And there we have the analogy that's been used for pastoral ministry throughout the years of, of that of the physician, the doctor of souls. He's, healed, he's healed here to heal broken, sinful people. He supports it by quoting an Old Testament quote. He puts the law right back at him and he quotes and he goes, go and learn. He says to the go, why don't you just go and learn the book of Hosea, for instance? Why don't you read it again? <laughs> Doesn't it say come to all those of the world, he's speaking to all those in the world, come to the Lord, for it is he who has torn, that has broken you, has condemned you, and it's he who will heal you. What shall I do with you? And he goes on and on. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You see what we do? We get our little cloistered selves together. We do our little righteous liturgies and things, and we think that we're holy. And Jesus says, you're not holy at all if you've lost the holy mission of, of the people of God to be light in the midst of the world. That's not holiness. That's pharisaicalism. And so they were the ones being condemned, as it turns out, by Hosea. Hosea is condemning the Pharisees who are condemning Christ for being like the world. And Hosea says, no, you're like the world. 
You have bought into the fissures and the divisions and, and the, all the rhetoric and the self-righteousness of the world. You know what's interesting about this? I mean, throughout the prophets especially, but you see it also in our own day. I mean, just, just listen to any news station today. I mean, where, is, where are you going to find self We're always called the self-righteous. The church, oh, church or people are self-righteous. Have you watched world news recently? And the incredible self-righteousness of everyone pointing fingers at everyone else? They, the Pharisees, were the worldly ones that Hosea is condemning. They were the worldly ones. Oh, Ephraim, he says, a tribe of Judah. What am I going to do with you? Says Hosea. You've lost your way. You forgot who you are in the image of God. These I have come statements in the Gospels appear always to be an explanation of the purpose of Jesus' coming in humiliation. Whereas those who are all caught up in the world and the divisions of the world and the strife of the world, they wanted a political Messiah. They wanted someone here to take over the taxation system. What do you do with this coin, Jesus? They wanted someone to take out a sword, qua Peter, and fight. And Jesus said, put up your sword, take away your money. I have nothing to do with your politics. You don't see a word of it in the Gospels, do you? Not a word. And it was one of the most corrupt political systems in the world. It's not that he's, these, there's not laws against it. And there's not that he, again, this is not to diminish the state at all. Quite the contrary. We have a robust view of the state and of justice in a temporal sense. I hope you heard me say that. But the church and the state, they're just two different institutions. Yes, I think they actually work together in certain ways as the hand of God. But they're two different institutions. And so we have the final conclusion, for I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. And Luke adds to repentance and faith, just to fill it out. They had forgotten Isaiah. They had forgotten Malachi 3, Isaiah 9, I could go on and on. How he described in Isaiah, for instance, how uh, there will be no gloom for those who are convicted of sin, anguish. He will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations will come. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light and those who lived in a land of deep darkness on them light has shined. Let me bring this home in two ways. First of all, I want to speak to anyone in this room or on the Zoom who are struggling with shame, who are struggling with, with guilt. I know we all, a lot of us are struggling with that and don't quite know sometimes what it is. I find when I struggle, and I've been feeling it for a while here, and it's like, what, what, am I, what is it? And I think part of it's, it's the way in which we live in a world that puts so much moral weight on even things like how successful I am as a, as a church planner or a pastor. I feel guilty that I'm not more successful. 
Maybe you feel that way in your school as a teacher. Maybe you feel that way as a, as a worker, a provider of your home, and you feel guilty because, you know, the world has made us feel guilty, this self-righteous world, for working hard as we know how to work. And yet, yeah, maybe we haven't been as successful as we want to be. Maybe there's a feeling of shame and guilt that you haven't lived up to God's purpose and calling for your life. I guess they call that a midlife crisis. I don't know, it's been going on for a long time, so maybe it's just a life crisis. Or maybe there's just, you're feeling dirty because the world categorizes certain things in your life that are dirty, and you know you struggle a little bit. Maybe you're dealing with pornography, or I don't even, I don't even get specific. You know, maybe, maybe you, you're selfish, and you know you're selfish down deep, you, you, and selfishness is kind of ugly, isn't it? Maybe that's what you're suffering with. Whoever you are, and I know you're here, and probably all of us are here, I want to speak to you here from this passage. What does it do that you hear from this passage that the most deplorable human being that could have walked the face of the earth in the days of Jesus was worthy of his grace and forgiveness as an image bearer? That person who's feeling shame, go back and read Psalm 139. Remember who you are. You're made in the image of God. You are worthy. Because God made you worthy of being healed. And he wants to heal you. I put it up on the screen. R.C. Ryle about this common, this passage says that we are not to keep away from Christ as many ignorantly do because we feel bad and wicked and unworthy. We are to remember that sinners are those he came into the world to save and that if we feel ourselves such, it is actually a good thing, he says. It's well. For happy is he who really comprehends that one principal qualification for coming to Christ is a deep sense of his or her sin. As God convicts you of sin, rejoice. Let him also convict you of grace. You're an image bearer. It was worth God's time to send his son to suffer for you, to heal you of your worst predicament that you have, which is that original sin, that disposition that wants separation from God in order to form your own gods that you get to ironically control by your works. Really, be exercised of the demon of shame today. Say it right now to yourself. Say it as you come to this table or can contemplate come to this table as professing faith. Say it. Jesus Christ has the power over the demons of shame. Put it in words if you want, like Hollywood or something. I don't know. You know what, what do they say? You know, be, 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 whatever it is. I'm not trying to make fun of it. I'm just trying to tell you how true it is. You need to just declare it. Gone. It's wrong. This passage tells us it's wrong. It's the pharisaical spirit of this world that's telling you to feel shameful. This particular sinner met Jesus and he held a banquet. He didn't bow his head and go in shame and waller in it. 
he stood up, followed after Christ, pitched a banquet, and introduced his friends to Jesus. That's the response of a sinner when they respond to the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then I want to speak to us as a church and to the churches at large. Clearly, this is a call to all who, would, who have lost our way as a church. Again, R.C. Ross says this, we should learn from Matthew's case that nothing is impossible for Christ. He can take a tax collector even and make him an apostle. He can change any heart. He can make all things new. Let us never despair of anyone's salvation. Let us pray on and speak on and work on in order to do good to souls, even to the souls of the worst of our society. We will speak differently. We will speak in different contexts differently. We will measure our thoughts. We will calculate how we speak to those who are sinners. We will know that the ultimate original sin is the sin that's got to be dealt with before you can talk about particular sins. We will appeal to them as image bearers, not as despicables or deplorables. Listen to your rhetoric, Church of Jesus Christ. Listen to it. It's pharisaical to the core. So much of what comes out. Listen to it. Yes, get involved in justice. But don't lose mercy. Become an alderman. Become a mayor. Become a soldier. Become a police person. Become a social, work, social worker. On and on and on. Become any of those things that engage on all sorts of angles this common grace of government. Yes, there needs to be temporal justice to restrain evil in the world. We're not opposed to that. But church, that's not your job, acting as church. That's our job to support them, but not as church, qua church. We're here to save that person who may be going to jail. You see the difference? And why? Because we think there is a power, as Raul has beautifully said it, that is just not of this world. I know it's easy to despair and say no way that X, Y, Z could be saved. He is just too evil. Well, good news. If you're a Christian, you know you can't say that because if you're really saying that this person's evil is more powerful than Christ's goodness, you don't know Christ. You haven't encountered the one with such great authority and power. So how would that change the way you think? And let's just bring it to earth here. Not just in the societal sense, but who's that neighbor, that person you're thinking, no way, no way. They're just so disinterested in all this. You know, we had some very humble, modest gatherings yesterday. One here, two in the uh, Westville area. You know, modest turnout in all three. Here we had two people confess that they're not really spiritual, but they are really wanting to check it out. And one of us here invited them to come to church with him. Maybe you're listening right now. I don't know. 
Maybe you're here. I just don't see you. We had another situation in Westville talking to a person who, who actually had been an alderman here uh, when we pl- uh, planted this church and built this building. And we recognized each other. He had really been helpful. We started talking. And I won't tell you his story, but he's thinking, hmm, you guys have been doing something for a long time here. And it's really getting my interest. Now, how many people don't, you, you need to pitch a party. <laughs> you need not be ashamed. I would have wished there had been 50 such parties this Saturday. Modest maybe in neighborhoods. We, do we believe it? That Jesus is powerful to save anyone. But you got to step out, you know? How, how, can, how will they hear? How will they know? Well, the reality of that is it's not through a written message in the sky. It's going to be through you. That's who it's going to be through. How do you know that you haven't been brought into this person's life for this very purpose? And yeah, you'll take a few risks. You might risk a little social popularity or social respect. Do it in a way that's kind and gracious, of course, and I suspect you won't. Amen.